Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. We're going to be right in the middle of your Bible if you have a physical copy in a book called 1 Kings. 1 Kings is a historical book that charts the different kings in Israel's history during the monarchy in a very strange time. At the time of this story, Israel has undergone a civil war. This kingdom has split, and the northern kingdom, Israel, the larger kingdom, has been under a progression of really evil kings, and by evil meaning they have turned their backs on the commands of Yahweh. And so God sends prophets, and prophets operate as a mouthpiece of God to call them back to proper worship of Yahweh. This is an ancient uh, culture very far from our modern Western one. But the story we find ourselves in here today, I think, is incredibly applicable to many of the people in this room. Because it deals with questions like, how powerful is God actually? It deals with questions like, how much power do we actually have as human beings or lack thereof? And what do we do in the presence of our own limitations? What happens when we cannot function the way we think we ought to as human beings? So this is a very human text. Um, It's one that was not a part of our original preaching calendar, but one that um, I've kind of taken a detour to want to preach. Uh, Each week we've been focusing on two separate, one or two separate disciplines. And the idea of those different habits or rhythms or disciplines at the end of this, we're going to take a look at all of them. We're going to put together what's called a rule of life or a trellis, which is kind of like a reorganization of your life around the things that really matter, around the person of Jesus. And so the two different practices or disciplines we're looking at today are the practices of limitations meaning what can't you do, Um, and then also the practice of listening. And what does it look like to listen to the voice of God, specifically in in conjecture with one another? Um, So again, if you have a Bible or if you want to pull up a digital one, um, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. I'm going to be paraphrasing quite a bit just so we don't spend the entire morning just reading the text, but just to be able to shine some light on it as well. Um, so why don't you do me a favor, why don't you bow your heads with me, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive into the, the message this morning. Lord, we know this morning, Caitlin's in Encinitas is preaching on silence and solitude. Now, Lord, sometimes moments like this are the only quiet we have in the midst of a busy and hectic week. And so, Lord, we want to pause, to quiet our hearts and our minds, to be aware of the things we've been carrying in our bodies, the concerns, the worry, the stress, the hopes, the dreams and joys. And Lord, we ask that you would help us show up honestly today, honestly to the text, honestly to you, Holy Spirit. Or that somehow in this ancient story, we would find you again. We would find ourselves again. And that when we leave here this morning, 
that we would find ourselves recognizing at a greater level just how much your loving power is present and what to do with our own weakness and limitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to start in 1 Kings 18, starting verse 29. And as you turn, there's just some context here. Uh, in this divided kingdom, Ahab and Jezebel are the king and queen of Israel. Um, they have actively worked against um, the, the worship of Yahweh, which was up to that point what the Jewish people were um, known, for, known for. And one of the things they did is they began to start instituting uh, what was called uh, a kind of idol worship of two gods primarily. One was Baal or Baal, one was Asherah. And so they erected these shrines all over the hill country of Israel. And so at the time, Israel is worshiping both Baal and Yahweh. And Elijah, who's the primary prophet at this time, shows up after three years of drought, which was predicted that it would happen because of their idolatry, because of their infidelity to Yahweh. And after three years of drought, now think about this. There, there, there's no advanced waterway system. It's an agrarian culture so three seasons, three years of drought means lives of livestock and people are largely in jeopardy. And so things are getting pretty intense. And Elijah finally shows up and he calls to have a conversation with, with the king. And he says, how about this? Let's figure out once and for all who's God. And so he's like, okay, well, what do you have in mind? He's like, let's meet at Mount Carmel. You bring your 450 prophets that you have eating around your king's table, and I'll show up, and we'll both make these two altars. We'll bring the animal to sacrifice, the wood. He says, but here's the thing, you can't bring fire. And whichever God is actually God will have to provide it. So they agree. So they show up, and you guys remember, like, in high school, if you went to, like, public high school, and someone yelled, like, fight, like, across the quad. What happens? Like, everyone's, like, vroom, they just, like, circle around. It's kind of what happens with the nation of Israel. Everyone surrounds Mount Carmel. They want to see who's going to win. It's like a divine showdown. It's like UFC won, you know, like, and it's, it's, a, big, it's a big fight. And so the Elijah's like, you go first. So these 450 prophets of Baal begin to start entering into their version of their pagan worship, which involves all sorts of strange things, all the way up to mutilating their bodies. And Elijah, uh, some of you guys would probably like, like him, some of you guys probably wouldn't, but he starts, starts trash-talking them, right? If you read the text, he literally says, oh, maybe your God's um, using the restroom, you know, maybe he's busy right now, and just, just totally poking fun at them. And hours go by, and nothing happens. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 29. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. So this is when it's supposed to happen. But this is the synopsis. Listen, pay attention. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. He then goes on. And he says, okay, let's drench the offering. Now, this is three years into drought. And so they drench the whole offering with water. And then he says, do it again. So they pour water on it again. He says, 
one more time. So he soaks it a third time to the point where there's like literally trenches around the altar that are now filled with this precious commodity of water. And then he speaks up. It says, at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Now, verse 37 is key here. He says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you are Lord our God and that you have turned their hearts back then. The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. I mean, what a radical scene. Fire from heaven consumes the offering. And to the point there's no more water left And it says that there was national repentance. They shouted, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, after this moment, uh, Elijah speaks to King Ahab and he says, he starts to predict, hey, now that you know, rain will come. And he sends him ahead to his cap to the city where he's going to find this rain. He says, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Now listen to verse 46. If like, if this was already like a pretty epic story that you'd like watch on Hulu or something like that. Verse 46 says, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So check this out. The spirit of God, the hand of God rests on Elijah to the point where he outruns a chariot. Like at at this point, this guy is moving from the category of like prominent human prophet to superhero. Like people, like the, the, the stories that are told about Elijah are not rivaled by anyone in the Old Testament. He just outruns a chariot after calling fire down from heaven and ushering rain after three years. I mean, th- this guy's status is just skyrocketing. And so let's pause for a second, and let's ask ourselves the question, as a reader, not just a modern reader, but as an ancient reader, what would you expect to happen next? And the obvious answer to that is celebration. It would be some sort of promotion of Elijah, maybe a parade, right? Maybe like something to like usher this great dramatic display of God's power. There should be some sort of equivalent response from the people of God, from Elijah. But that is the opposite of what happens. So Jezebel, who is this infamous character in the Old Testament, threatens Elijah. She hears about all of her prophets dying. Because of, because of the repentance of the nation of Israel, they s- slayed all of these false prophets. And so she, usher, she, ushers, or, yeah, she ushers this threat to Elijah. She says, the same thing that happened to them is going to happen to you. Now, keep in mind, it's not like Jezebel didn't have like, some like, governmental power. But the guy literally just defeated 450 prophets, called fire down from heaven, outran a chariot, But rather than standing up and giving some great prophetic speech, it says in verse 3 of chapter 19, then he was afraid. 
And he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba where it belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. That's important. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and he touched him and he said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank. And went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Quick note, uh, Horeb, or the Mount of God, is another name for Mount Sinai. This is where God met with Moses, called Moses, gave them the Ten Commandments. So he leaves Mount Carmel near Jerusalem, travels into, um, in kind of northern Egypt where Mount Sinai would be. It says there, he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And the wind, um, it says, and after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, right? The very symbol that just marked his presence. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? At this point, Elijah repeats himself. He says something to the effect of, I've done everything you've asked me to do. No one's left. Um, they've killed your prophets. And in, and in doing that, he's essentially offering his resignation. He says, I'm done. And God's response is, again, surprising. God accepts his resignation. He gives him instructions on who to go and anoint after him. But then he corrects his thinking. This is where we'll stop here in verse 18. God says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Remember, Elijah said, I was the only one left, which is interesting, because he just saw a national repentance. But he just talked to Obadiah a few verses later, said there's 100 prophets hidden in a cave. And then God has to go and tell him, actually, there are 7,000, most likely there's 7,000 households that have not bowed their knee to Baal. And this is where we're going to kind of pause the story right here. Because this story, if you, if you read chapter 18 and 19, what a contrast. 18 is like epic, movie-worthy, like see it in IMAX kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, chapter 19 gets really like sad, right? Like slower, melodic music, indie film, 
right? It just totally changes. And, and I wanted to bring up this story because I think it actually, in a very powerful way, articulates the human experience. Is we see sometimes within the same moments, God's power and faith-challenging displays of his majesty. And in those same moments, we become incredibly aware of our own limitations, fear, weakness. And so I wanted to, to bring that up because I think all of us can identify with Elijah based on some of the things that he faced. So I want to point out five things that Elijah faced in this, in this chapter. Number one was spiritual exhaustion. Right, this is probably the most obvious. Uh, I don't know the last time you called fire down from heaven and outran a chariot, but I'm sure you would feel pretty tired. Right, he's just poured, Paul says like this, I poured myself out like a drink offering. So Elijah has just done, he just prophesied rain after three years of drought. I mean, talk about a long Sunday. Elijah's at the end of himself. He's facing spiritual exhaustion. The second thing that we had to point out is that he's facing demonic opposition. One thing that scholars unanimously point out is that Jezebel was not just some sort of historical figure. She represented something much deeper and darker behind her that was animating her force. There was something about the spirit behind her, some sort of demonic presence that was challenging Elijah to the point where he was running for his life. And the reason I want to point this out is because of our secular society, And because of our post-Christian society, we tend to fall into one of two camps. One is that we live in a world where we do not take seriously the spiritual realm. At best, it's something that we entertain in the month of October for horror movies. And then for the rest of it, we just kind of dismiss. But for most of the world, the spiritual realm is incredibly real. I mean, travel to, to most other continents and country in the spiritual realm is as real as the burrito you're going to eat after church. And so in this world, this was not a metaphor. This was a very real threat that Elijah is facing. That's, that's one thing. And then, granted, there are those in those camps that think there's, like, a demon under every rock, right? Like, you, you blame, like, everything on, like, the spiritual realm, and you need to stop, okay? If you're late, it was traffic and poor timing, not because, like, Satan got in your way. So um, somewhere in the middle of that, We need to have, especially in our secular society, we need to have an increased awareness that, hey, sometimes in your life, when you're facing something, there is a spiritual component to it. And you need to to address that in a specific kind of way. The third thing that Elijah faces is relational isolation. There's almost a progression here. That as he starts having spiritual exhaustion, demonic opposition, what he finds himself is he, he starts removing himself from community. He runs away. There's a really interesting verse that we read that he says on his run, he literally left his servant there. Meaning even the person whose job with him to never leave his side says, you can stay. So Elijah is completely alone. So he thinks. The third thing that he, I'm sorry, the fourth thing that he faces is physical depletion. This is something that oftentimes is not talked about within the church. That physically he was exhausted, right? He's had this massive pour out. He, jo- he journeyed a day's journey into a drought-ridden desert to the point where he thinks he's actually going to die. And so he's, 
he has exhausted his physical ability as well. And then the fifth thing he faces is, and largely because of all of the other four things, is a narrative distortion, meaning he cannot see clearly reality and what God is up to because he's become so depleted spiritually, physically, emotionally, and relationally. There's nothing left. And so when he goes to talk to God, you hear it in his response, he repeats twice. He's like, there's no one left. I'm the only one who's doing it right. I mean, have, have you ever been in that place? Like, you, you, you can't see clearly because you have been so overwhelmed. You're so exhausted that you actually cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel. You can barely even tell you're in a tunnel. And that's exactly where Elijah finds himself. And I want to I point out the five ways God responds. Because God responds uniquely, not just in this story, but throughout the Bible, in different ways. But before we do that, I, I want to tell you why we're preaching on this story. And if I can have your permission, I would love to just have a moment of vulnerability. Um, I shared this with our Encinitas community last week. I'm going to share it with you guys today. Is uh, It's been a little bit of a wild few weeks for my family. Uh, there's the thing I'm going to talk about, but we've also had a flood. We've had to move out of our house. We've had multiple kids be sick. Um, there's just been just crazy. But, but by, by far, the thing that really, really impacted me and really discouraged me and made me identify with Elijah is that two Sundays ago at our 9 a.m. gathering in Encinitas, it's our largest gathering, it's the first time I preached the message all day long, um, about five minutes in, I had a full-blown panic attack. And what made that worse is the last time I had preached at the 9 a.m. service, I had a more minor one. And so two weeks ago, I'm on stage, and I wasn't feeling anxious before. I felt pretty good. And all of a sudden, I felt like I was going to black out and um, had to literally pause the sermon, catch my breath, um, had to sit down, um, kind of had to, and it was, it wasn't like, Whenever I've had them in the past, I've kind of just muscled through them. But at this point, by the time I got stage, I had a dozen text messages from people just saying, are you okay? I was visibly moved. And I have to be honest, it was, it was, it was really scary. It was really embarrassing. Um, and I immediately told Jen, my wife, I'm like, hey, I, I don't feel good. Um, this just happened. And she's like, do you want me to call Brian, see if he can come up? And I said, yeah. So if you were in downtown a couple weeks ago, Brian preached at the beginning of the service and went up to Encinitas, I was why. And I wanted to tell this story to you guys for a couple reasons. Um, one, I think that the most effective church is one that moves together within our own humanity limitations rather than a group of people who do our best to put on some sort of facade of how we're doing. And so uh, I wanted to just take a moment with you just to be honest about my journey. Um, secondly, uh, I think that as I've been processing the past couple of weeks, um, I think that what God is doing in me isn't just for me. I think there's maybe an offering and an invitation for someone else um, in our community. 
And so before we dive into how we see God respond in the text, I want to just share you a little bit about my journey. I won't take too long on this, but that Sunday was so kind of rattling for me. Um, I made a few phone calls to just try and get to the bottom of what was happening. So that Tuesday, I ended up having two really important meetings. One was with a therapist that I really trust who only works with pastors and is very familiar with kind of my line of work. And then I met with my doctor as well. And they both asked me like dozens of questions like, okay, what's this? And tell me about this and tell me about your rhythm, blah, blah, blah. And so as I'm telling him all these questions, both of them came to the same conclusion. It says, it sounds like you have adrenal fatigue. It sounds like your adrenal gland is completely shot. And then I'm like, well, what does that mean? And my therapist pointed out, he says, your adrenal gland is what measures your level of adrenaline that's going on in your body. It's a gift. It helps you focus when you need to focus. If you ever need to have, if you ever need to run or do something, it gives your body the superpower to do it. He says, but if your adrenal gland is shot, then you don't have a way to regulate what's going on in your body. And so he says, what happened for you is because you, you don't have a proper functioning adrenal gland, when you went into speaking, which is a high anxiety, high adrenaline type environment, you didn't have the ability to access that. So your body flooded itself with cortisol. And if you're familiar, cortisol is a stress hormone. And he says, that's what moved you from being anxious into panic. And he says, when your body floods with cortisol, it removes all the blood from your legs and your arms and your head and moves it to your core as a survival technique. And so he says, it's, it's, that's why you feel like you're going to pass out because you literally, do, you've lost blood flow to your legs and to your arms. And, and he went on to just tell me, he says, yeah, this, he says, this, it says, it feels like you're going to pass out. He says, actually, you could sprint faster than you ever could. He says, that's what it's, it's trying to prepare you to do. I said, well, I'm like, why is that happening? He went on to explain to me, he says, he says, there's been some studies done at a Fuller Theological Seminary on what preaching does to your adrenal gland. And he says, the, the reports show something like a 30-minute sermon does the same thing to your adrenal gland as an eight-hour work day of physical labor. And, and so I wish it did the same thing to my muscles as like an eight-hour work day. It does not have that same ability, but apparently it really taxes my adrenal gland. So he's like, well, how often are you preaching? And I, I'm like, well, like four, sometimes five times a Sunday. He's like, well, how long? And I was like, too long? <laughs> like 45 minutes maybe and 50 minutes sometimes. And he's like, if you do some simple math, you're putting about 50 or 60 hours of stress on your adrenal gland in one day. Um, he says, that takes recovery. And he says, and if you, if you, if physically your adrenal gland is not recovering, You'll, you'll, your body will lean into cortisol, which is not helpful in those moments. And so I'm like, well, what do I do? And again, I'm sharing this because I'm, I'm, I'm guessing there's more than one person in here, and I know now from our conversation in Encinitas that this is not just for preachers. This is for people who live in high-stress, taxing environments. He started asking me questions like, well, the, the best thing you can do for your adrenal glands is sleep. He says, are you sleeping eight hours of night? I said, I have four kids, two dogs, and a flood in my house. I am not sleeping eight hours a night. Um, he's like, well, are you exercising? Are you doing like five hours of cardio a week? And I said, no. <laughs> and then he's like, 
well, are you like having sugar? I'm like, okay, buddy, listen, okay? Too much. It's fall, okay? We all know this is when we like get really strategic about the sugar that we're eating. We're like ramping up for like Christmas cookies and stuff like that. So um, my answer was no, I I was not watching the sugar. He's like, well, this is the best thing you can do is you need to start sleeping regularly. Um, you need to start sleeping more. He says, you need to give your body proper cardio. He says, he says, and you should not have any sugar in your body at least 48 hours before you preach. And I was like, oh. I'm like, all right. And as I was learning all of these physical things, he began to start asking me more soul-level questions. He says, what did... He says, what did you feel when that happened? And, um, and that's where it started kind of wrecking me a little bit. Um, and that's where so I'm like, I, I, I felt really embarrassed. It's like, why did you feel embarrassed? And, and I'm like, I, I don't know. I just, I'm like, I love preaching. I love what I do. I feel called to do it. I've been doing it for 20 years. And as I'm processing, getting emotional, he just drops this line. I think it's from the Holy Spirit. It says, it sounds like somewhere along the line, you made a rule inside yourself that you have to be strong. And for whatever that was, just kind of broke me. I started like weeping on, on like our FaceTime that we were doing. And he's again kind of probing some more. He's like, well, where did that come from? And I'm like, and at that point, I'm like, I, I don't even know. I'm like, I'm like I guess every, I mean, every, kind of a human thing, right? We want to be strong. He's like, yeah, probably. Because it seems like you can't operate, though, with people viewing you as weak. And so one of the reasons I we're, we're taking time in this sermon to talk about this is what God's addressing in me is um, I don't mind appearing humble or meek. I'm more soft-spoken in general. But um, I realized the last couple weeks more than ever before, I have a really hard time appearing weak. And that's problematic because the Apostle Paul made it very clear. He says that in your weakness, Christ's power is made perfect. He goes as far to say, I will boast in my weakness. I will boast about it. And I I realized that, honestly, out of a lack of faith, I feel like God has had to use my gifts and my strength and my expertise to get across his power. And what I am being challenged, not that I've learned this already, I'm very much in the middle of this, is that there's something about my inability Please hear me. There's something about your inability that God wants to use. That in a certain way, God cannot display his power without your weakness. And what we're about to see in this story that Elijah so clearly illustrates is what God does in the midst of our weakness is profound. If, you, if you're new to the idea of God, to the Bible, to Christianity, I'm glad you're here this morning because this is a really important question you should ask about God. What, does, what is God like in your weakness? What is God like in your 
limitations. Pete Scazzaro in his book, The Emotionally Healthy Church, says, it is so freeing as a leader for me to utter the words, I can't. When we don't respect God's limits in our lives, we will often find ourselves overextended, stressed, and exhausted. And so my, my prayer this morning is that we would find ourselves being honest with the Lord, with one another, with your open table leaders, your roommates, your spouse. And by being honest, it's, it's not just an honest version of how you're doing in terms of how things are going well, but when you need, when you're in need and when you need someone to lean on. So let's, let's look at the five ways God responds, not just to Elijah, but let's look at a broader picture in Scripture. How does God respond to spiritual exhaustion, demonic opposition, relational isolation, physical depletion, and narrative distortion? How does God respond to these things? Number one, when our spirits are exhausted, the Holy Spirit comes and empowers us. That offering would not have worked if it was not for the Spirit of God falling. He would not have outran that chariot if it was not for the hand of God upon him. He would not have seen rain to end that three-year drought if it was not for the Spirit of God. And so the very first thing I want to communicate to you is that if you are facing a level of exhaustion, weakness, you begin at the Spirit. You invite the Holy Spirit. Just simply come, fill me, empower me. Put your hand upon me because that's, that's the source. I think about in Galatians chapter 5, it says, we live by the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. There is no cure for spiritual exhaustion other than spirit empowerment. And so we begin there. Secondly, when you face demonic opposition, when you face the enemy of your soul, what you need is a spiritual victor. What you need is a champion that has won, that you no longer have to figure out who's going to win this battle. And that has only come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ, death and resurrection and victory over the grave. For Elijah, this was up in the air and he was searching for it. Post-resurrection, we don't have to wonder anymore. We don't have to see God come and consume an offering on Mount Carmel. We get to look at the cross. So when you face demonic opposition, you no longer claim your own strength, morality, good works, or lack thereof. You look to Jesus who has covered you in his complete righteousness. And we stand in that victory. Thirdly, if you're facing relational isolation, I mean, I think this is so interesting. Elijah actively removes himself from community. The very first thing that God does when he shows up before he gives him, like, the bread and the nap and the voice, he sends him his angels. He re-surrounds him with community. He's, he puts presence around him. And maybe you're here today, and you're dealing with relational isolation, and God very practically saying his, you need to get back in relationship. Not into a relationship, but in relationship with one another. Into an open table, into community, with a mentor, with a pastor. You need to find yourself saying, I can't do this alone. Elijah couldn't do it, nor should he have. So we need to lean into that. The fourth one, this is probably my personal favorite at the time, 
is if you are facing physical depletion, you need practical sustenance. I love this. When Elijah runs to the desert, he doesn't start with speaking to him. He gives him a cake. How good is our God? Taste and see that he is good, right? He literally bakes him a cake. Elijah wakes up and sees it baking. And then he gives him water. And then, best part of all, he says, take a nap, right? We were doing a preach team meeting. And Mark Slomka, who many of you guys know, says sometimes the most holy thing we can do is take a nap. And that's for someone today. You're like, your homework assignment post-church is you need to go and sleep. And I know we're joking about this, but can I tell you something? Some of the most helpful information I received the past two weeks was practical. You need to sleep more. You need to change your diet and you need to exercise. Am I, can I tell you something? Uh, that has revolutionized how I felt. Now, has God spoken to me? Have I needed prayer? Have I needed community? Absolutely. But sometimes we over-spiritualize things and we forget that you are a body. There is a physical dimension to who you are. And God, because he knows that and because he came in a physical body, meets us with his mercy and grace in, in practical ways just like that. And then the last thing is that when you have narrative distortion, when you can't see clear, clearly, you need to ask for redemptive providence. You need to look for the Lord to show you a different way of seeing things. Um, last Sunday was the first time I had preached since my, my couple of my episodes. And um, I got to be honest, I was really nervous. I wasn't so much anxious, but I was very curious how I was going to feel. And I had a couple of... Um, Older couples in our church asked to pray with me, and I just welcomed that. So before service, they came up and laid hands on me, and they're praying for me. And one of the ladies, she said, I feel like the Lord is telling you to have your eyes wide open to what he's doing. And they said a lot of things, but that line was what I needed to hear. Why? Because part of the effects of exhaustion and worry is your narrative becomes small. And what I needed to hear was have your eyes wide open. See what God is doing. And it's, it so helped me to get up on stage that for the last couple of weeks had been marked by fear and weakness. And all of a sudden I was marked with faith. I was like, wow, this morning showing up, same thing. I'm still dealing with like, okay, here I go. This is this kind of one of those areas I'm trying to disassociate my anxiety with this actual action. And in the top of my notes, it just says, have your eyes wide open. And so this, might, this obviously looks probably different for you. But if you're facing some certain level of your own weakness, limitation, worry, I would give you that same charge. Have your eyes wide open. Where is God working beyond your own limitation, your own experience and circumstances? Because I guarantee you, my friends, he is. He is at work. He does not waste suffering. He does not waste pain. Like we said earlier, as a matter of fact, his power is perfected in the midst of it. So where is he at work having your eyes wide open? I want to I wanna end this, this talk with kind of our second practice. The first one is all about limitations and being aware of those things. The second one is listening. Um... As I look at this text, these two chapters, 
if I, if I were to suspect what, if there was one theme that wove itself through these two chapters, remember, they're two very different chapters, right? Like, awesome action IMAX film and really emo indie film, right? Like, just two totally different stories. If I were to, if I were to pick a theme that the author is wanting to communicate, it has to do with listening. Why? Well, look at verse 29. After they had a failed attempt of having Baal show up, it says, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. That's our first clue. What they were looking for wasn't a display, it was a voice, which is backed by eight verses later, nine verses later, when Elijah begins to start preparing his offering, and what's his prayer? Answer me, O Lord, answer me. It seems that no matter who you are in that moment, you're looking for a God to speak. Which all of this concludes in chapter 19, verse 11. It says, And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Now pause right here. Fire, wind, and earthquakes were all ways God had spoken in the past on Mount Sinai. These should have been the moments where Elijah would have been expecting God to speak. But strangely enough, it says that God was not in the wind. He was not in the earthquake. And to the reader's surprise, he wasn't even in the fire that had just showed up the previous chapter. He says, and after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came the voice and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? I've thought about that question a lot. Why that question? Why, out of all the things God could say, the speeches he could give, the rebuke he could give him, why that question? What are you doing here? And more important than I think why that specific question, I think what we need to point out is the fact that when we come to the end of ourselves, we serve a God who likes to ask you questions. I think about Adam and Eve, right? After they rebelled against God in the garden, what does God do? He shows up and he asks them questions. Three of them, actually. He says, where are you? He says, who told you? Like, who told you the lie that you should be in shame? And then he says, what have you done? I think about how fascinating that we serve a God who when we come to the end of ourselves doesn't give lectures, he asks questions. And so I think some of you to, this morning need to just sit with the question with what is God asking you? Like if God were to ask you a question, if you were able to get alone, what would he be speaking to you? What would he ask you? Is it, where are you? What are you doing here? Is it who told you these lies? I think the fact that none of these questions are ever repeated means that it's pretty specific. God may have a specific question to ask you this week. And all of that is predicated on the fact, are you listening? Um, you did not have the privilege of having Caitlin preach to you this morning. I cannot encourage you enough 
to go and listen to her sermon. Her whole sermon is on silence and solitude, which are the two practices that position your heart to hear God. We don't have the time or scope this morning to dive into it, but I cannot urge you enough that if there is one thing you that will catapult your maturity in Christ, it's your ability to listen and respond to him. I, I can't think of one thing that will progress your spiritual mature, maturity more than your ability to hear God and respond appropriately, which means the greatest assignment of the enemy is to make you busy enough and it noisy enough for you to not be able to hear the voice of God. What is he saying to you? Why did it show up in a whisper? When God could show up in earthquakes and fires and, you know, Goodyear blimps or whatever your prayer is for him to do, but, but more likely than not, he's probably waiting for you to be able to become quiet enough to hear what he's been saying. So we're going to respond this morning with some worship. And in that worship, we're going to be um, even giving some space just to listen. It's easy to sing songs with lyrics on a screen. It's easy, honestly, to listen to s someone give a sermon. It's a little bit harder for you just to wait. To open your heart, to open up the scriptures, to open up your spirit to what God may be speaking to you. So would you do me a favor? If you have a journal, you're welcome to take that out. But other than that, um, just maybe put everything under your seat or put aside. And I'm, I'm going to encourage you, if you're, if you're able, you can stand up. If you would prefer, you can find a seat or kneel. But posture yourself in a way for you to be able to, to, to be present to God and what he may be saying to you. And as our worship goes on, my guess is you're going to be moving from quiet into singing. That's fine. That's a perfectly adequate response. Um, but let's see what God is speaking to us. Become aware of your own limitations. Who do you need to talk to? Who do you need to bring into that space in your world and your heart? And let it begin with God. And as you're honest with God, ask him to be honest with you. Let him speak to you in a very real and powerful way. Let's just take a moment of quiet and we'll begin worshiping here in just a minute.
as we were worshiping, um, I, I just felt really just deeply pre- impressed in my heart that there's there's maybe somebody here that this the subject of listening to God is a painful one because you feel like it's been quiet for so long. And even opening yourself up to the possibility of listening to God feels um, dangerous. It's like it's going to open up a wound or it's going to press on something that has not healed yet. And so as I was just praying into that, I was like, Lord, what is that? I, I felt really strongly that as you gain the courage to listen again, that his voice, his shepherding voice, you'll, you'll know it because it sounds like care. And what I mean by that is you've been listening to voices, right? Whether it's the own inner critic you have, whether it's culture, whether it's a loved one, whether it's your boss, I, I don't know. But the voices you've been listening to have led you towards depletion and despair. And God's voice will be marked by care. And that if you are courageous enough to listen, you'll know his voice because it's welcoming you into wholeness. He's not keeping you at a distance. He's not asking you to do something that will only bring more pain. He's welcoming you towards healing. So would you listen beyond this moment? You may or may not have heard anything, but the goal of a spiritual discipline is that it's not a moment. It's not even an experience. It is a habit. It is a continuing of showing up once again to listen. And would you know his voice because it's the voice of the shepherd who leads you to still water, to green pasture, to refresh your soul. It's the voice that's with you in the valley. It's a staff and a rod that protects you, doesn't punish you. It's a voice that leads you to a table with cups that are brimming over with blessing. It's a voice that chases after you with his goodness and his kindness and his beauty. And it's a voice that no matter how soft it may be, has not stopped speaking over you and is inviting you home and will unrelentingly continue to speak. And my prayer this morning is that the other voices that have only led you towards pain and destruction and despair would be silenced in the name of Jesus. Would you listen for care? Would you listen to your shepherd? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.